We are still in principle number 11, which talks about reward and punishment of the 13 principles of faith as enumerated by Rambam. We're in principle number 11, and this principle states that God will reward those who listen to him and will punish those who disobey him. Now, for those of you still counting, this is episode number 13 on this principle. And of course, as we always try to do, we try to do a rigorous study of this principle from all the aspects to really build out our understanding of what it means that God will reward those who listen to him and punish those who disobey him. And in order to understand the idea, we have to kind of build out all the necessary prerequisites and background information about this vast subject. But today, we're finally going to advance and proceed to the actual subject, namely the reward of Olam When we talk about God rewarding and God punishing, we always differentiated between the reward in this world or the reward in paradise. All the other rewards are in one bucket. And then the ultimate reward is the reward in Olamaba in the world to come. This is the ultimate goal. This is the ultimate destination. This is the ultimate objective, the ultimate venue of reward and punishment. The ultimate fulfillment of this principle, principle number 11, is Olamaba. Now, Olamaba is perhaps the most enigmatic subject of all. And today, I want to try to understand it a little bit better. What's Olamaba? What's it like? What do we know? What do we think we know? What can we speculate about this world? What makes this world so desirous? Why ought we to covet admittance, eligibility to this world? When exactly in the whole timeline of all the things that happen in the afterlife, when exactly is this world Olamaba experienced? And this we're not going to cover today, but this is the next objective in our study. What do we need to do? What specifically must we do to make sure to guarantee that we are invited to Olamaba? So we have a lot of fundamental questions about Olamaba. Let's begin. As we mentioned innumerable times, the purpose of creation is for God to reward man. Man is the goal. Man has free will. Man is supposed to earn divine goodness. God wanted to give, therefore he created. And the purpose of that, the ultimate fulfillment of that, is the eternal pleasure of Olam now, to get started, I want to read from chapter 1 of Mesilas Yesharim. This is another work of Ramchal. We've been quoting Ramchal a lot lately. He's the one who gives us the, the Derech Hashem, the way of God that we've mentioned many times in the past. He also wrote a book called Mesilas Yesharim, which means the path of the just or the way of the upright. And in the beginning of chapter 1, he gives the best and most succinct distillation of why 
mankind was created. And he says, what our sages instructed us is that man was only created for the sole purpose of experiencing the pleasure of God and enjoying the radiance of God's presence. Why was man created? To be a recipient of God's goodness, to be a recipient of the pleasure of God. And the way that's defined is lehisaneg al Hashem, to enjoy God, to have the pleasure of God, and to radiate and to bask in the splendor of God's presence. What's the goal? Why were we created? To experience the pleasure of being in God's presence and experiencing God. Continues Ramchal. He's going to define it. What does this even mean? This is the true pleasure and the greatest delight from all the delights that are feasible. When Ramchal wants to define this pleasure, the pleasure, that's the ultimate goal of creation, why we are here. We're here to experience the pleasure of God, to bask, to radiate in the splendor of God's presence. When he defines that, he gives us two definitions. This is the true pleasure, and this is the greatest delight. This experience, the experience which is the ultimate pleasure, it's a true pleasure. Qualitatively, it's true. It's real. It's genuine. It's not fake. Evidently, there are true pleasures, and there are fake ones, and this is the true pleasure. Qualitatively, this pleasure is a different type of pleasure. It's a true one. It's not a fake one. That's definition number one. Definition number two is that it's the greatest delight. If qualitatively it's the true pleasure, quantitatively it's the greatest. Not only is this qualitatively a true pleasure, not a fake one, it's also on the biggest scale possible, the magnitude of this pleasure supersedes any other. So to understand what we have till now. Ramchal is telling us the reason why we exist, the reason why we were created. The ultimate goal of creation is for man, mankind, of course, to experience the pleasure of God, which is this great pleasure that's a true pleasure, not a fake one. That's a great pleasure, not a small one. It's the greatest. It's the true pleasure. And then he continues. The venue, the place of this delight is truthfully Olam the world to come. For that world was created for this purpose. So when we have been saying now for weeks, we've been contending that Olam that's the goal. Everything else is trying to prepare us. You go to Gehenom to cleanse yourself. You go to reincarnation to give yourself a second chance. All about trying to ensure that you're capable, that you're eligible for Olam Abba. Olam Abba is the goal. Now we have the context. Why was man created? 
to experience the pleasure of God, to enjoy God's presence. And that's the true pleasure. That's the greatest pleasure. And where is that? Where is that experienced? In Olam Abba. In this remarkable and pithy paragraph, Ramchal is crystallizing really what life's all about, boiling it down to its essence. The goal, well, why were we created? Ultimately, the bottom line, it's to experience pleasure, the pleasure of God. What type of pleasure? Pleasure of God, which is the greatest and true pleasure. And where is that? Well, that's in Olam Abba. Now, it's important to note, just to follow up what we said a couple of weeks ago, if this is the pleasure of Olam Abba, this is also the pleasure of paradise. Remember we talked about the world of the souls? Souls could go to Gehenom or to paradise. And you may recall that Ramchal told us that there are two objectives of paradise. Number one, you have to wait. The soul in paradise in what's called Ganeiden, the Garden of Eden, which we spoke about in its proper time. There's two goals for the soul there. Number one, to wait for the body and the world to be ready. And in that world, in the paradise, in the world of the souls, it experiences an enjoyment akin, similar to Olam Abba. And the second goal, of course, is to recharge the soul's cleansing capacities that it will need for when it is reunited with the body. But thus, when we're trying to figure out what Olam Abba's like, if paradise in the world of the souls is an experience akin to Olam Abba, well, if we discover what Olam Abba's like, we will also learn what paradise is like. And I'm trying to do this in a way that I'm skipping no steps, really to go through this methodically and rigorously. So we have, we have an answer. What is the goal? The goal is Olam Abba. What's Olam Abba like? Well, it's the fulfillment of why Hashem, why the Almighty created us to experience pleasure, the pleasure of God, to bask in God's radiance. And this is the truest pleasure. And this is the greatest pleasure. And this is in Olam Abba. And a version of that is also in paradise. Now, it would be a dereliction of duty if I did not read to you the continuation of Ramchal where he organizes and lays out, okay, if that's the world to come, what does this mean about us here? We're here, and we need to get to there. But the way, this is a quote, the way to arrive at our destination, the destination that we desire, is only through this world. The goal is the next world. The way to get there is this world. And he quotes the Mishnah in Perkeavos chapter 4, this world is like a corridor before the next world. You got to work really hard in this world to make sure that you're able to enter what's at the end of the corridor. And the means that bring a person towards eligibility for the next world, those are the mitzvos. And the mitzvos can only be done in this world. And therefore, man is placed in this world. To do the mitzvos. 
And these are the means via which a person will be able to arrive at Olam Abba to be able to experience the goodness that the person earned via these means. And he quotes the Talmud, Today, we're here to do them, to do the mitzvos, and tomorrow, we're going to get their reward. So if principle number 11 teaches us that God rewards us for mitzvos, when is that reward? It's an olam abba. And what is that reward? It's experiencing the pleasure of God basking in the divine presence. And this is the true pleasure. And this is the greatest delight. And all this is achieved via the mitzvos. Now, of course, we've already seen how mitzvos relate to reward in the afterlife. You remember, there are 613 mitzvos. And the soul is comprised of 613 parts. And the body is comprised of 613 parts. And thus, each mitzvah creates the part of you for Olam Abba. So if you do them all, you're filling out every part of yourself for the afterlife to make sure that you have everything that you need to flourish in that world and you're lacking nothing. You're not, God forbid, going to be there and be a cripple spiritual cripple in the afterlife, and you're not going to be missing the vital, so to speak, organs and limbs that are needed for life in that world. So we're seeing some definitions about what Olamba is really like. I want to add some more critical details. Again, from Ramchal, this time from Derech Hashem, The Way of God, Section 1, Chapter 3, where he describes Olamba. And he adds some more crucial details that we need to know. Now, it's important to mention, we mentioned this many times, but I want to make sure that this is conveyed clearly. This subject, certainly the timeline, it is notoriously hard to find sources about it. And not every opinion is universally accepted. But certainly Ramchal and the way he describes it, that can be classified as the normative, the the mainstream, the consensus opinion. That's why we're going to go with what he tells us. He's talking about Olam and he says, when when is this going to happen? What's the timeline for that? The timeline for receiving the ultimate reward that's after the resurrection in the world that will be renewed. A person dies, if they're lucky, they're placed in the world of the souls. If they're unlucky, we talked about last week, where they could possibly end up, be reincarnated, God forbid, end up in a place of eternal punishment, God forbid their soul could be disenfranchised, But if someone's fortunate, they go to the world of the souls, either to paradise or to purgatory. And eventually, after purgatory, they would end up in paradise. But they're there to wait. And what are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for the resurrection, the reunification with the body. They're waiting for the body to be ready. They're also waiting for the world to be ready. After the body is ready, after the world is ready, both body and world 
will be renewed. Just like the body is destroyed, will come back. The world too. And we spoke about this, of course, in the past. 6,000 years, a 1,000 years of destruction, and then it's going to be rebuilt. When is all of us experienced? It's after the renewal, resurrection, both of man and of the world. So, body, soul separate. The body is going to be reunited with the soul. In a similar way, the world, perhaps you can say the soul of the world, the life of the world is going to be separated. The world is going to die. And then the soul of the world is going to come back into the world. The world's going to be rebuilt, resurrected. Man will be resurrected. And that is what we call resurrection, which is, by the way, principle number 13 of our 13 principles. And after that is Olam Abba. And a person will enjoy, will experience that experience, which again, the true pleasure, the greatest delight, the experience of God basking in the divine radiance, man will experience it, humanity will experience it with their body and with their soul. Now, what will the soul look like then? What will the body look like then? What will the merged fusion marriage of the two look like then? Will it be identical to the way it looks like today? No. In that world, continues Ramchal, the body will be purified, will be refined via the soul. You remember, we mentioned this a few minutes ago. There are two reasons for paradise. Number one, you're waiting for the body, you're waiting for the world to be ready for resurrection. And while you're there, you experience a pleasure akin to Olam Abba. That is reason number one for paradise. Reason number two, it's to restore the soul's refining capacities. To restore to the soul what it needs to be able to refine the body, to enable both of them to be ready for Olam Abba. In Olam Abba, the person will be comprised of a refined soul and a refined body. The soul, the soul is going to be refined either in this world, via reincarnation, via Gehenom, or any of the other ways that souls get refined. And the body, well, it will be refined via all the experiences it underwent post-mortem, and then by the soul during the resurrection. And after the body and soul come back together with resurrection, that's the world of Olam Abba. And everyone's going to be on a different level. It's not just this uniform experiences that everyone who's there is on the same level. No. Depending on how hard a person worked in this world, depending on how much perfection a person attained in this world, that will determine the splendor of their soul and the level, the status of their experience in Olam Haba. So I think we we assembled some attributes about Olam Haba. When is Olam Haba? It's after resurrection. Body and soul, both perfected and reunited. Everyone's going to experience it 
according to the level of perfection that they attained in this world. And again, this is the goal of creation. It's achieved via mitzvahs in this corridor before we get there. It's the venue of true pleasure, not fate pleasure. It's the venue of the greatest delight. This is pleasure on the highest level. And it's described as delighting in God, basking in his divine presence. Body and soul, after resurrection, that's the ultimate goal. So if we just learnt, studied what we've covered hitherto, we have some definitions. We have something to work with about what Olamaba is like. But we haven't really gotten an experience of what it's like. What does it actually mean to take pleasure in God, to bask in his presence? What is the experience of Olam Abba, and by extension, of course, paradise, which is a pleasure akin to Olam Abba? What is that actually like? I think this question, it gets to perhaps the most enigmatic concepts in our philosophy. The more you study it, the more you discover that Olam Haba is and will forever remain for us in our current constitution, it will forever remain a mystery. We don't really have so much literature about it. And what we do have is not really clear. In fact, much of what we are told about Olam Abba is highlighting the complete impenetrability of this subject. So, for example, the Talmud tells us the book of Brachos on page 34, the prophets, the great seers, the great visionaries, they saw the future. And they were able to tell us what the future is like. And they were able to describe the Messianic age. By the way, Messiah is principle number 12. We have to get to that. Because that, of course, there's a lot to cover there. But these prophets were able to see deep into the future. But all the prophecies only reached a certain level. All the prophets, they only prophesied for the days of Messiah. But for Olam Abba, quotes a verse in Isaiah 64, I in low rasa, and I cannot see it. Even the far-seeing, clairvoyant vision of the prophets cannot visualize, cannot conceptualize Olam Abba. Messiah, well, that's within the purview of the prophets. They're able to conceive it, to visualize it, to describe it, to codify it in their prophecies. But Olam Abba, the world to come, the world that's the ultimate goal, the world that we're so deeply coveting at the end of the corridor, even the prophets cannot see it. It's beyond the sphere of their vision. Olam Abba is beyond what the, uh, the eye can see. 
when we are told about Olam Abba, it's more about telling us what it's not like. The Talmud again in Brachos tells us, Olam Abba is not like this world. This world is decidedly different than Olam Abba. In Olam Abba, there's no eating. You may think that Olam Abba is like this massive smorgasbord, as much sandwiches and chicken and steak. All you can eat. You may think so. No, but there's no eating in Olam Abba. Well, at least I could have a drink. At least I could have some scotch or wine. There's no drinking. There's no eating, there's no drinking. There's no procreation. There's no business. There's no envy. There's no hatred. There's no competition. The attributes that define our world, eating, drinking, procreating, business, envy, hatred, competition, does not exist at all in Olam Abba. Well, what does exist? Elat tzaddikim yoshvim. Tzaddikim are sitting, ve'atroseim biroshem, and their crowns are in their heads. They are enjoying from the radiance of God's presence. Does that really help us? How much more do we know now about Olam Abba? We're being told all the things that it's not. No eating, no drinking, no procreation, no business, no envy. No hatred, no competition. But what is it? It's that Sadiqim sitting with her crowns in their heads and enjoying the radiance of God's presence. Well, what's that like? And I think kind of the, the larger question I'm trying to get at over here is why is it so hard for us to understand what that world's like? Why is it so completely impenetrable? Why is it beyond the purview of the prophets? Why is the the most comprehensive description of Olam Abba featured in the Talmud, why is it all about what it's not like? It's not like this world, not eating, not drinking, etc. So I think this gets to the core of what Olam Abba is. The Almighty created the world, he created humanity, because he wanted to give. He wanted to give. He wanted to bestow upon some other thing. And therefore God created some other thing. And he wanted this other thing to be able to have the greatest experience possible so that God could give. But he wanted the person to really, really enjoy it on the highest level. So he gave mankind free will to be able to earn that pleasure. But what is this pleasure? It's a pleasure of God. God created the capacity for us, non-God entities, we have the capacity to experience a God-like pleasure. And this is the reason why it's so difficult for us to understand it. If it's a God-like experience, or it's an experience of God, just as we are incapable, certainly in our current makeup, of fully understanding God, we're finite. He's infinite. We can get some definitions, but ultimately we can't really experience it with our senses. 
So too, the experience of God that the righteous sitting with their crowns and their heads are going to experience in the afterlife, we can't really understand what that's like in our current world. The Talmud tells us one of the definitions of God, we've spoken about this in the past, God sees but is unseen. God is invisible to us. There's no amount of description and definitions that can create an image of God. We cannot connect to God with our senses. Even at Sinai, the Jewish people did not see an image of God. If Olam is the pleasure of experiencing God, no wonder it's beyond our comprehension and our conceptualization in this world. That's one half of the mystery. The other half of the mystery, which is maybe the, the way to solve this mystery, is our soul. You recall when we spoke about the soul, and we tried to really give an understanding of what the soul is, we read the Talmud, the Talmud said that the soul matches or rivals God in its purity. God is pure, the angels are pure, and the soul that I place within you is pure. The experience of the afterlife and to a certain degree in paradise, which is an experience which is akin to Olam that is really experienced by the soul. The soul, which is in some way similar to God, that is capable, that entity, that half of ours is capable of experiencing God. Our soul also sees but is unseen. Our soul does have the ability to experience God. The reason why all of us are such a mystery to us because the only way or the only part of us that can experience Olam Abba, it's our soul. And most of us, we have no idea what our soul is going through. Our soul interface, soul spelled S-O-L-E, our only interface with the world is through the body. That's how we see the world. That's how we interact with the world. If mitzvos are food for the soul, as we mentioned, you would go a day without a mitzvah, your soul is on the verge of death. And you feel totally fine. Torah is like oxygen, water, bread for your soul. You could go a whole lifetime without studying Torah. You feel nothing. Our senses are divorced from our soul. And therefore, it should come as no shock that the idea of experiencing the tzaddikim sitting with the crowns on their heads and enjoying the divine presence, that's an experience of the soul. That's this true pleasure, this greatest delight that the soul is experiencing. And if we have no idea, we're totally incapable of experiencing what our soul experiences, it should come as no shock that all of us is this total mystery. I want to kind of add another point here. There's an amazing Rambam we've mentioned in the past. It's his treatise on reward and punishment. 
when he talks about Olam and, and spiritual pleasures in general, he says the following. And I quote this in my book. Just as a blind man cannot fathom colors, and the deaf cannot grasp the sound of noises, so too bodies cannot grasp spiritual pleasures. The body is completely and inherently precluded from absorbing spiritual pleasures. You talk to a body for 500 years about Olam about basting and divine radiance, it does not connect. It doesn't land. Because the body is blind to the spiritual pleasures. And you could describe green to a blind person. Well, it's so luscious. It's like green grass. You feel it's luscious. Oh, and red is like fiery, like a fire truck. And yellow, well, it's it's kind of bright, like the sun. And purple kind of has like a mellow feeling to it. It doesn't mean anything. Someone's blind. They've never seen it. They've never experienced it on a sensory level. It's just words. In this world, our eye cannot see it. We're blind to the pleasures of Olam Words cannot articulate what that's like. In my book, Chapter 27, I have a wonderful sentence. Quote, Seeing from your elbow is as plausible as sensing spiritual pleasure with your body. So we're trying to figure out something, and now we know why we're hitting a brick wall. It's so beyond us because the way we're constructed, we're constructed to interface with the world, to experience the world as a body, in a physical sense. And none of the thing about what we're talking about, about Oma Ba, is physical at all. It's not like this world. There's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no procreation, etc. And from all this, it seems that we just, we just can't crack the code of Oma Ba, and by extension, paradise. Unless we're there, unless we become seeing, we just cannot fathom what it's like. That's what it seems hitherto. But it's not quite so. There is a way to get a sense of what the pleasure of Olam and paradise is like even in this world. I want to read you another line, another quote from Rambam's treatise on reward and punishment. In this bodily world, the pleasures of the spiritual world are unknown. By default, we only have the physical and sensory pleasures of eating, drinking, copulation, and everything that is beyond those is for us non-existent. We do not recognize it. And we will not Grasp it upon initial thought only after great contemplation. And that line is the critical line. We will not grasp it upon initial thought only after great contemplation. The Ramam is telling us unambiguously 
that this pleasure, this olam haba, this experience of God, initially we're blind. Initially we cannot grasp it. But some element, some scintilla of this experience can be understood after great contemplation. And now we know why. If we only interface with the world as a body, of course, then spiritual pleasures are beyond us. But we do have a soul. And that soul, well, it's similar to God in some way, in some shape, in some form, in some context. There are five similarities that Talmud tells us between the soul and God. The soul is pure. The angels are pure. God is pure. Our soul, in fact, is perfectly engineered and calibrated to experience the pleasures of the soul. And therefore, we do have within us, deep, deep, deep within us, buried under lots of layers, we do have a soul which is capable of experiences of a soul, experiences akin to all Maban paradise. And therefore, if we define some way to unearth that, we can, in fact, get an inkling of what Omaba and, by extension, paradise are like. That's what the Ram is telling us. We are completely locked out of this whole world, literally and figuratively, initially. But after great contemplation, if we're able to unearth, to surface that soul... Maybe we can understand a little bit about that world. Now, this creates a bit of a problem. The Rambam cannot argue with the Talmud. That's just the way it works. The Rambam, he can explain the Talmud, he can codify the Talmud. But when the Talmud says that even the prophets cannot understand, cannot see Olam even the prophets are incapable of perceiving that world. How is it possible that he comes and says, well, you can perceive it, you can experience it if you work really hard? Which is it? So here's a point that I want to tell you today. Both are true. Olobaba is invisible, beyond the purview of the prophets. And I cannot see it. The only thing we could do is get some definitions and talk about some words that don't really pack a punch because we're blind to that experience. But, olam haba-like pleasures, soulful pleasures, are indeed perceivable in this world. The prophets, they cannot see it. They cannot see it. And I cannot see it. But can they feel it in some way? Can they sense it in some way? Can they perceive it in some way? The answer is yes. Now you recall, I mentioned this a few times to kind of position you for this point. I was anchoring you. I was setting you up for this. You recall the Ramchal gives us two defining characteristics of the spiritual pleasure of Olam It's the true pleasure, not the fake one. It's the greatest delight. Not a small pleasure. It's the greatest one. There's a qualitative aspect of Olam and there's a quantitative aspect of Olam Qualitatively, 
all above, by extension, paradise. That's a true pleasure. That's not a fake pleasure. Number two, on a quantitative level, all of us, the greatest delight, it quantitatively dwarfs all other delights. The Mishnah tells us, this is in chapters of our father's chapter four, one second, one hour of spiritual bliss in Olam is greater than all the conceivable pleasures of this world. Quantitatively, Olamaba is unmatched by anything else. So again, two differentiations of Olamaba pleasures. It's the true pleasure, it's the greatest pleasure. When the Talmud tells us that Olamaba is invisible, which of these characteristics are invisible? Which is the Talmud invoking? Is it saying that true pleasure is invisible? Is it saying that greatest delight is invisible? Or is it saying that both are invisible? The answer is that when we talk about Olam being beyond the purview, it's inaccessible. It is beyond us. Even the prophets couldn't see it. That is referring to Olam in all its splendor. But the idea of true pleasure being different than fake pleasure, true pleasure, the pleasure of the soul, the pleasure when the soul experiences something deep and real and eternal, that is, in fact, accessible, perceivable in this world. Olaba, in its completeness, invisible to even the prophets. But the true pleasure and the notion of true pleasure on a much smaller scale that, in fact, is accessible here. Of course, like the Ramam tells us, after great contemplation. I know this is not the easiest idea to follow. And I apologize for that. I get a sense when we talk about these subjects, we call them Torah 101. It's really not so simple. It's not so basic. It's not so rudimentary. I've made the joke in the past that you really have to listen to it 101 times to really understand it. But what can I do? These are weighty subjects. So I, I'm, I'm aware, I'm aware that it's sometimes hard to follow. But we're saying a point here. There are two characteristics of Olam about pleasures as described by Ramchal or as classified, codified by Ramchal. The fact that it's true pleasure and the fact that it's the greatest pleasure the idea of true pleasure is not beyond the purview of the prophets. Only the greatest delight, the qualitative aspect of Olam only that is beyond the purview of the prophets. Now, if you, if you read Ramchal, this is my grandfather's discovery. If you read Ramchal very critically, you see that he says it explicitly. He tells us, our sages instruct us that man was created for the sole purpose, soul, S-O-L-E, for the only purpose of having the pleasure of God and enjoying his divine presence, which is the true pleasure and the greatest delight of all possible delights. 
התענוג האמיתי, עידון הגדול מכל העידונים. True and greatest. And then he says, the venue of this delight is Olam Abba. He told us that it's a, it's a delight and a pleasure, a ta'anud and an idun, two different words in Hebrew. And then he says, the venue of this idun, makam idun azeh, is Olam Abba. Evidently, only the aspect of Olam Abba pleasure being the greatest delight only that is reserved for Olam Abba. But the fact that there is true pleasure that is experienced by the soul in Olam Abba, that, in fact, is accessible here. So, to answer kind of our original question, what is Olam Abba like? Well, it's the experience of God. It's the experience done with your soul. It's the experience of God's presence. It's the true pleasure. It's the greatest delight. We now know, definitively, the Rambam tells us to us, the Ramchal tells it to us. We now know that it is possible to experience Olam Haba-like pleasures in this world. Not, of course, in a full-blown version of this, but some degree of true pleasure is, in fact, accessible here. Now, Why am I harping on this so much? Why is it so important to know that there's a possibility of experiencing Olam Abba-like pleasures in this world? I think, you know, the basic reason why this is so important is because this is what we're going after. This is it. This is the ultimate. Everything else is just to prepare us for this. And therefore, if we want to understand this subject, principle number 11, reward and punishment in Olam Abba, we have to understand what it's, what it's like. The whole subject really, all of our life, comes into more clarity once we understand what we're going after. But there's another reason why I think it's important to understand that all of my like pleasures are, in fact, feasible in this world. And that's because I suspect this is speculation territory. And this is really the subject we're going to cover next. I suspect that one of the ways to gain entrance to Olam Abba is by experiencing a little bit, a small down payment of it in this world. To the degree that a person actually gets a little head start in experiencing Olam Abba like pleasures in this world, that's going to be the key for them to actually gain entry and eligibility in the world to come. I want to talk more about this, this idea of, of experiencing all of the like pleasures in this world. In my book, I wrote this cryptic line that says, well, if you want to see how to do this, you have to look at the Rambam and the laws of mitzvos, or in the, in the book of mitzvos, mitzvah number three, where, where he describes how to do it. How, how to actually, but what do I need to do if I want to experience all of my like pleasures in this world, give me the instructions. I'll follow them. Well, here are the instructions. It's really short. It's really short. It's a, uh, you know, maybe a dozen words. 
but it's maybe the hardest thing to actually do. <laughs> mitzvah number three. The Rambam has a book called the Book of Mitzvahs where he delineates mitzvah number one through mitzvah number 613. Unlike the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that we are using in our ethics series to go through the mitzvahs, the Sefer HaChinuch follows the mitzvahs in the order in which they appear in the Torah. Rambam organizes it by order of importance. So mitzvah number three is really towards the top of all the mitzvahs. And mitzvah number three is to love God. Ve'ahavta et Hashem elokecha, you should love Hashem your God. With all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your resources. What does it mean to love God? We have a hard time even understanding what God is. Gotta love God? Says the Rambam. This is what it means to love God. To think and to ruminate in God's mitzvos, in God's Torah, in God's handiwork. Well, God's not visible in this world, but the Torah that he conveyed to us is visible in this world. The mitzvos that he instructed us, they're, they're doable in this world. His handiwork is everywhere. His fingerprints are in every single thing in this world. So God himself is invisible, but there are, there are clues. There are, so to speak, proxies of God in this world. And you have to think about it. Nachshov. Think. Engage what makes you special as a human. Engage your brain. And ruminate. Ruminate's like a deeper, deeper level of thinking. You're trying to understand God via his mitzvos, via his Torah, via his handiwork. And you're thinking, and you're pondering, and you're ruminating. Ad shenasigehu. Until we acquire it. Until we have the insight. Until we hit pay dirt. And we will take pleasure in our discovery. With the highest level of pleasure. This is what it means to love God. It's not long. It's a couple of words. Maybe a dozen words. It's telling us something very, very deep and very fundamental. Olumba, we said, paradise, that's the experience of experiencing God. The Almighty allows us the capacity to experience something godlike. That's the true pleasure. It's the greatest delight. But there are capacities, there are opportunities for experiencing something godlike in this world. Not God directly. He's invisible in this world. But He gave us His Torah. He gave us His mitzvos. His handiwork is everywhere. And through that, we can have some sort of insight, some sort of discovery, some sort of achievement. It requires a lot of work. You gotta think, ruminate, ponder in one of really three things. Mitzvos, Torah, his handiwork. You gotta work really hard until you have an insight. Your insight, your discovery 
is in effect a version of you visualizing you experiencing you basking in the divine radiance in all about with your crowns and your heads. And that will bestow upon you the highest level of pleasure. That is a touch point with true pleasure. And the mitzvah of loving God, Rambam tells us, that demands that we discover him. The way we discover him is via immersing ourselves into God's Torah, his mitzvos, his handiwork, until we have an experience of confronting, of discovering God, an experience that is akin to the tzaddikim sitting with their crowns in their heads and enjoying the pleasure of God. Now, it should come as no surprise that we know that the best way to acquire Olamaba is via the mitzvos, via Torah, and via our faith, which we earn by trying to discover God in the world. And we also discover that a real study of, of, of God in this world will bestow tachlisana, the highest level of pleasure. And that, in fact, will be our key to doing that on the biggest scale, on the greatest scale in Olam Abba. I want to end our discussion of what Olam Abba is like with the Talmud in the book of Brachos on page 57b. In chapter 28 of my book, we did a real full treatment of this very short piece in Talmud. But I want to just do a quick refresh for those of y'all who have read it and just to touch upon it for the benefit of those who have not yet read it. But this Talmud also gives us a little bit of a picture of what Olam Abba is like. Talmud tells us there are three things that are me'ain Olam Abba, that are a measure, are somewhat similar to Olam Abba. Shabbos, the Sabbath, Shemesh, the sun, and Tashmish. The word Tashmish is a homonym. It can mean either marital relations or relieving oneself. So the Talmud investigates which Tashmish are you talking about. Ultimately, Talmud concludes that it cannot refer to marital relations because that weakens a person. Rather, it's referring to using the facilities. The Talmud, of course, is speaking in code, as it often does. This is what we would classify as an agatic Talmud. But this contains some insights about the secrets of Olam Abba. There are three things in our world that have some overlapping qualities with Olam Abba. Of course, Olam Abba is invisible, but there are lessons, so to speak, or insights that we can learn from these three things from the Olam Abba's similarity or overlapping nature with these three things. Let's start with Shabbos. The first thing that we know is that Olabaz like Shabbos. Why? Because the format of Olabaz is similar to that of Shabbos. 
The Talmud tells us in Avodah Zarah, page 3a, if you toil before Shabbos, you will have what to eat on Shabbos. If you do not toil, if you don't work before Shabbos, you'll have nothing to eat on Shabbos. During the week, you made food, you prepare, you're allowed to cook, you're allowed to bake. Comes along Shabbos, you can't bake, you can't cook. Whatever you made, whatever you prepared ahead of time, when it was possible to do that work, that's what you have, and you cannot add to it. Once someone dies, their capacity to create, to work for that goal, it's over. What you earn, what you stockpile in the corridor, in this world, before, so to speak, Shabbos, that's what you will have to enjoy and to partake in in the world of Shabbos, in the world of Olam Abba. We have the preparation, the world of preparation, that's our world. That's like weekdays before Shabbos. And we have the world of consumption. And that's Shabbos where you enjoy what you made for Shabbos. That's all about where you enjoy what you made in this world, in the corridor, before the ballroom. And then there's the sun. Now, I cannot uh, resist reading y'all a citation from my book. Quote, The second theme that is a measure of Olam is the sun. This is not the only time that Olam is compared to the sun. As mentioned in the previous chapter, the Talmud teaches that an Olam was inaccessible to all the prophets, based upon the verse, and I cannot see it. Like the sun, Olam is too bright for even the great visionaries to absorb. Also, the Midrash, quoted by Rashi, Genesis 1-4, teaches that the light of day one of creation was hidden away in storage, awaiting the Tzadikim in Olam Abba. A third instance is the Talmud, Sanhedrin 91b, which states that in Olam Abba, the light of the sun will be diminished. Rashi explains that the sun's illumination will remain unchanged, but the light emanating from the tzaddikim will outshine it, and in comparison, the light of the sun will appear fainter. The soul is a bright spiritual light. In this world, the soul is enshrouded in a body that conceals it. Olam is where the soul is unsheathed, from the body, and it shines forth with the brightness of a thousand suns. Only Moshe succeeded in mimicking the status of Olam Abba in this world. Hence, the Talmud tells us, Bava Basra 75a, the face of Moshe was like the face of the sun. Now, I don't want to spoil this chapter for you. We talk about how the sun is a measure of Olam Abba. We explain the Talmud's point about Tashmish and what it reveals. You have to read it for yourself. But I think the larger aim of today's discussion was achieved. We've built out an understanding about Olam Abba. What is it? When is it? How is it? Why, in fact, it is invisible? How we can and perhaps must get a taste, get a whiff, get a scent of that world still here. And we have a little bit of a picture of what we have to look forward to 
if we are so fortunate. Now, it's important to remember that this subject is intimately connected, certainly the way we're understanding it, the way Ramchal explains it. It's intimately connected to principle number 13, which is the resurrection. And therefore, there's more that we have to cover about the kind of the mechanics of how the resurrection actually creates, you know, the new body or the, the new soul or the new person for Olmaba. But the next subject I want to cover is kind of a survey of what our sages tell us of what we need to do to ensure that we are eligible for that world. But I think there's something that we can kind of celebrate at this juncture of our study. You know, I always wonder, you know, what, what, do, what do atheists feel when they think about death? If your worldview is that it's just, that's it. Your whole, your whole life, everything, you, it's just, you're just getting closer, every day getting closer to this devastating point of, of what happens. It must be so terrifying. Your whole life is just this sandcastle waiting for the tide to come in. This house of cards. And there is a tornado about to visit town. And you don't know when. And it's all going to topple. It's going to end in emptiness and nothingness when they die. I think it's kind of a, of a sad and depressing thought. And there is a there is a cruel and bitter irony in this. We will yet learn one of the qualifications to ensure that a person is eligible for Olam Abba is that they actually believe in Olam Abba. And therefore, the atheists, the people who don't believe in the afterlife, are actually right. Because they have nothing positive to look forward to. Even if a person does mitzvahs. They do mitzvahs. But they don't believe in principle number 11. They don't believe that there is reward in the afterlife for their mitzvahs. They won't get any reward in the afterlife for their mitzvahs. So again, there's like a like a bitter irony here that the atheists are actually right. They have nothing positive to look forward to. But now that we've done such a study, such a comprehensive study, about Olamaba and what it's like, or at least whatever we can understand about what's like, we can be comforted to know that you know, when someone dies, there's something to look forward to. Not all of it is pleasant, of course. But even, as we mentioned many times in the past, if you end up in Gehenna, it's a very good place to end up in because it means you're on the path towards Olamaba. Your life, your existence is a success. We can live happy knowing that, but we have to also learn what it takes. What does it take? Tell me what I need to do. How can I ensure that when I arrive at those palace gates, I will be armed, we will be armed with an invitation to enter that world, that invitation that is what we so deeply covet. I thank you for listening and enjoying this subject with me from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. As always, my email address is Rabbi Walby, R-A-B-B-Y. 
I, W-O-L-B as in boy, E, at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, your feedback. Email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com.